Amen. Son of God, slain for us. What a love. Wow. Well, we're starting a new series uh, this week on the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and the title of the series is Called Out. Uh, and that sort of has a play on words here. There's sort of two ways you can think about that. You know, normally when we use the phrase called out, uh, we're meaning like you're, do you're doing something you're not supposed to, and someone's going to call you out on it, right? Like if you like the french fries at In-N-Out, I'm just going to call you out. Those are not good french fries. The burgers are great, but the french fries are terrible. <laughs> so I'm going to call you out, right? That's how we'll use it. And in many ways, 1 Corinthians is 16 chapters of Paul calling out the Corinthians for the lifestyle that they're living. But when we look to scripture, the phrase called out also has a very positive connotation. Called out of the world. Called out of darkness. Called out of sin. And that's the other pervasive thought through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, is that he, Paul's going to call you out, but he's going to remind you that you've been called out. That God has called you out. That you are in Christ. You are a new creation. You are someone that you weren't before. And that the solution to all the problems he has to call you out on is to remember that you've been called out into fellowship with his son. This message is sort of trying to do an overview of the whole book and looking at it from the angle of this. The title is Worth the Mess. And I think we're going to see in the book of 1 Corinthians, if you haven't read it recently or haven't read it already, that real church can be real messy. Let me just describe some of the situations that are going on in this church in Corinth that Paul's writing to. Well, the first thing is that they're very divisive, right? This was the very first preaching team. They had uh, Paul, they had Peter, they had Apollos, and they were divisive about who they would follow. If you map that onto Valley Bible Church, you'd have some people saying, well, I'm of Pastor Larry. Uh, I'm of Pastor Tim. The best would say, I'm of Pastor Todd. And then the real spiritual people would say, I'm of Pastor Phil, right? And that's probably where I would fall in that camp as well. But that's just one of the problems going on in this church. They're competing with each other. They're divisive. They think, how could you possibly like that preacher? This preacher's obviously better. There's sexual immorality going on in this church that would make the world blush. There's a man sleeping with his stepmom. There are people visiting prostitutes. On top of that, there's lawsuits happening at this church here that believers can't sort it out together. They can't possibly reconcile thinking about the cross. And so what do they do? They take each other to court to settle their disputes. Ministry has become self-centered. There's all these gifts, but people are using their gifts in order to show how great they are. And they're saying certain gifts are better than other gifts. And of course, we have the good gifts. You don't have those gifts. There's believers that are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. When they do get together for fellowship and for food, people bring food and they share it with just the people they like and they make sure to exclude other people. So those are some of the situations that are going on in the church of Corinth. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And put yourself in Paul's shoes. You planted this church... 
And now you hear of all these different problems that are going on. These aren't small problems. These are messy problems. And on top of that, a lot of this church has also felt like, you know what, even though Paul, you know, was used by God to save us through his preaching, you know, he's kind of embarrassing. I mean, the way that he focuses on the cross so much, like, that's not a message that anyone wants to hear. So, Paul, you should just change your message, change your tactics, soften things up. So you've got a church that God used you to save, You've got a church that really is now embarrassed by you and would rather that you change your ways. And then, of course, there's all these sin issues going on. Now imagine yourself in Paul's shoes. How would you start a letter to that church? And let's read some shocking words here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So now he's going to let him have it. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Wait, Paul, I think this is, this is probably the wrong letter, right? This, that's not, you wouldn't say that to these people. I mean, these people are indulging in sin, and you're saying they're sanctified. In Christ Jesus. You're calling them saints. No, 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 no. Paul, saints are the guys that, you know, they live these really holy lives. And then after they die, we say those are the saints. That's what saints are. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Everybody I'm writing to is a saint. Everybody I'm writing to has been sanctified by God. You mean the guy sleeping with his stepmom is a saint? It's like, what are you going to put on the stained glass windows of some of these people that you're saying are saints? But he says, no, they are saints. They are God's people. They are God's church. So he says they're called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to let them have it. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Is that how you would have opened your letter to the church of Corinth? Paul doesn't question their salvation. Paul doesn't wash his hands of them. In fact, he thanks God for them. At the end of this letter, he's going to affirm his love for them. How is it that Paul could think that this church would be worth the mess? Would you think this church is worth the mess? Or would you be looking for the, the fastest exit out of a church like this? 
And so the question we want to pose to ourselves this morning is, is the church worth the mess? Let's pray, and we'll look at that. Father, it's a convicting question to think, is the church worth the mess? And how could we possibly end up with a heart like Paul's who could thank God for a people that were delving into the depths of sin, that were turning on the person that God used to save them? How could he remain hopeful and confident and actually thank you for them? Lord, I pray as we look at this passage that it would give us the desire to want to love your church in all its imperfections, in all of its mess, because that's how you loved us, in all of our imperfections, in all of our mess. And we weren't just imperfect when you loved us, we were rebellious. We didn't want anything to do with you, and yet it didn't stop you from saving us. And if you could save us, then we can certainly love other people that you did the same thing too. So help us as we look through this passage to think that yes, the church is worth the mess and that we would love each other the way that you've loved us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So the church is worth the mess. First, it's worth the mess because it is precious to God. It is precious to God. Let's go to Acts chapter 18. This is the founding of the church. And we're going to see that God saves the unlikeliest people in the unlikeliest places. The church of Corinth. So the city of Corinth was a lot like probably San Francisco, L.A., New York, Las Vegas. I mean, it was a big city. It was an affluent city. It was an influential city. It was a trend-setting city, right? The things that happened there eventually spread out to the rest of the area, just like in, you know, our country. The things that happen in California, the things that happen in New York, they'll eventually spread to the rest of the country because they are trend-setting places. But along with all of that is kind of the, you know, the underbelly of those very same things is that these places also tend to be very immoral. They tend to be very proud, arrogant, selfish. We have it all figured out. We know everything. And those are the attitudes that permeate cities like Corinth, cities like San Francisco in the Bay Area. And when Paul got there, it says he did what he typically did in verse 4 of chapter 18. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Right? So Paul's preaching to this area, super affluent, arrogant, you know, and he's preaching to them. He's trying to convince them, the Jews in particular, that Jesus is the Christ. And they're not having it. So Paul says, forget you. Right? Your blood be on your own heads. I'm going somewhere else. But God had a plan. Look at verse 7. He left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, 
His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, right? I mean, this is like, you know, you're going to a cult, right? And you're trying to talk to everybody that's in this kind of like cult, and you're hoping that God might save some. And here's the cult leader. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Paul's hoping that maybe a handful of the Jews will get saved. What does God do? God saves the ruler of the synagogue. And God's not done. Verse 9, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The unlikeliest people in the unlikeliest places were the people that God chose to save. Paul, don't go anywhere. Stay right there. Stay where you'd least expect me to work and watch me gather my people. And he's not done. Look at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Right? So the, the Jews are upset. Paul's influencing people. People are getting saved. And so they go to the Roman ruler and they say, hey, take care of this guy. Verse 13. They say, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this, right? So the Jews are upset. They go before this Roman ruler and say, hey, get Paul in trouble. He's upsetting us. And this Roman's like, he's not doing anything. He's not committing any vicious crimes. It's like, you deal with it. So then the people get frustrated, and they end up beating the ruler of the synagogue, who's now Sosthenes, right? Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. He got saved. Sosthenes gets in his place, and he ends up getting beat up. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and who? Our brother Sosthenes. The same guy that took Crispus's place now gets saved. Another ruler of the synagogue gets saved. Saving the unlikeliest people in the unlikeliest places. God finds the most unlikely people precious to him. And so can we find those same people precious to us and worth the mess? Because Paul does. You know, and just kind of as an aside, I think sometimes we think, oh, the Bay Area, I mean, the Bay, I mean, it's, let's get out of this place. This is a God-forsaken place, right? I mean, let's wash our hands. Let's say your blood be on your own head. I'm going to Idaho, right? Away from all this craziness. But I think God would tell us the same thing he told Paul. Don't go anywhere. Stay exactly where you are. I have many people in this city. And that's what we should do, right? God saves the people that you'd least expect. 
I think sometimes we think, you know, God, oh, God will save the guy that is wearing khakis and a blazer, right? A respectable person like that, God will save a person like that. And who does God save? God saves the people that are wearing my body, my choice on their t-shirt. That's who God wants to save. Why? Because it shows off who he is. And so let's be a part of what God's a part of. Finding the unlikeliest people precious because they're precious to God. They're also precious to God. You see in verse 2, they're his church. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. They're precious to God because God has sanctified them in Jesus Christ and called them to be saints. Right? Sanctified. God loves them. God finds them precious. So he took them out of the world. He set them aside. He separated them from the path that they were on. And he called them. When you hear that word called, it's that you were hand-selected by God. I want you. So this church is precious to God. And God set it aside so that it would be different and distinct and strange. It would look strange to the rest of the world. When you're set apart, you don't do the things the world does anymore. You have completely different values. You have different things that get you up out of bed in the morning. You're not motivated by the bigger house or more vacation time. You're not looking to kick your feet up and take it easy. You're not concerned about your reputation anymore. Your values are completely different. You've been set apart. You have completely different beliefs. You believe that there is a right and a wrong. And you believe that God's word is the source of all those things. You have completely different actions. You treat all people with dignity and respect. Why? Because you know that they're made in the image of God. You're kind and patient with all people, even people that don't deserve it. Why? Because that's how God was to you. You're a different kind of person, right? The world should look at you and think, you don't fit in here anymore. You're not like us. You're a light in a dark place. I was talking to one family this week, and they were mentioning a, a relative of theirs, and she recently got saved, and she's married to an unbelieving husband. And her husband had said, like, it's like, I, I don't, you know, I don't like the, our new relationship. And she's thinking, like, what do you mean? Like, I'm kind to you. I love you. I'm gentle with you. I'm not mean to you anymore. It's like, yeah, but I want the old you. It's like, why would you want the old mean me? It's like, because light, because darkness doesn't like the light. Because it convicts them. And they'd rather have it be the way it was before. But if you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, you're different. At least you're supposed to be. That wasn't what was happening in Corinth. Look at chapter 3. He says, But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? It's like you're not being distinct at all. You look just like the world. Like, I like this guy. I like that guy. How could you like that guy? This guy's way... It's like that's what the world does. And you're supposed to be different. 
You are set apart. You are different, but you're not acting like it. But Paul still finds them precious because they are sanctified. They are called, even if they're not acting like it. Look back at verse 2 in chapter 1. Paul mentions something else. He says that they're sanctified, they're called to be saints, and he points out that they are now part of a larger, totally new community. You're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Right? He's doing this because the Corinthians think that they're really something. They're, they're sort of, yeah, I mean, they're the high watermark of what the church should be and should look like. And Paul's reminding them, you're just one little local church in the larger universal church. And the thing, the common bond that you're all supposed to have is that you've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what should be the mark of your community. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ means that you have a complete inability to save yourself. You have nothing to offer God. All I have to offer God is sin. And that's not going to get me very far. It's like, I have nothing. I need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why do you call on him? Because he has everything. He is the only way that you could ever be reconciled to God. Good works aren't going to do it. You wouldn't even want to do them anyway. You couldn't cleanse your own heart. You couldn't pay for your own sins. To call on the name of the Lord is to acknowledge, I am desperate. I have nothing and you have everything. You were the one who laid down your life for me. You were the one who died on the cross paying for my sin. You were the one that was raised from the dead. I didn't do anything. And so the new community that you're a part of, the community you've been called into, is one that declares, I am nothing and Christ is everything. And so what should characterize a community like that? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is humility. If you acknowledge, I have nothing before God, we should be the most humble people in the world. Another characteristic of that community should be gratitude. He did everything for me who didn't deserve it at all. I mean, wasn't that what was so great about last weekend? Good Friday, remembering that Jesus laid down his life for our sins, seeing those people baptized who went, who were just showing a picture of what it means to go from death to new life, coming together back on Sunday morning and getting to sing with everyone of all the things that Jesus has done for us. I mean, you just wanted to run around and hug every person and just think, how is it that we're get, we get to be a part of this? Why would he do this for us? Like, can you believe this? I mean, that's what should characterize our community every Sunday. Can you believe we get to come together? We get to remember what he did for us, that we get to love each other. That should be the community that we're a part of. There should be unity, right? I'm no different than anybody else. We're all just a bunch of sinners who had nothing to offer to God and God had to do everything. We should be one body. And we should serve each other. He graciously served us. He laid down his life for us. 
And if Jesus would wash our feet, then how can we not wash the feet of one another? And not only that, that's not only true of the people in this building, that's true of every person in every place who's called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, that this church isn't acting like it. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So what's going on in this church is that there's this issue that's come up among the church, right? This is a pagan place, uh, and part of pagan worship was that you'd sacrifice these animals to these idols, and, you know, they would sell this meat after, you know, this pagan worship, and some Christians felt like, yeah, let's buy it. Why not? It's a good deal. And other Christians felt like, how could you possibly do that, right? This was meat that was given to an idol in worship of a false god. How could you possibly eat that meat? And Paul says, I can understand both sides of that. I can understand the side that says, actually, there are no idols. There's only one god, and everything else is not even real. So eat the meat. Nothing happened to it. It was basically used in, like, a play. There's nothing real about it. But then he can understand the other side, like, I got saved out of this pagan worship. I don't want any part of anything that is associated with that. But what was happening is that people didn't have that, they didn't, just couldn't say, like, oh, I understand that. I understand how it could offend you coming out of that, so I'm going to lay aside my right. No, they weren't saying that. I mean, it's hard, I mean, it's hard to not think about now, like, the whole mask situation. Should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? All this kind of stuff that thankfully it seems like by and large were past. But the whole situation, it wasn't about like, is it right or wrong? Is it good or bad? It's like, can you just prefer your brother and not demand that they do exactly what you do? Can you just lay aside a right for the sake of someone else? And that's what Paul does. I mean, Paul gives them example after example, every right that he's laid aside. Look at chapter 9. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? He's like, you want to talk about rights? I'm an apostle. I've seen Jesus. I was the one God used to save you. You want to talk about rights that I could demand from you? But he doesn't do it. I'm not going to demand anything from you. I'm going to lay aside every right. Look at verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier as it is at his own expense? And what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I have so many rights that I've laid aside. I could get married. But you know what? I couldn't do the same ministry that I could right now. So what do I do? I lay aside my right to get married so that I can serve you. God says that the people who are served should support the one who's ministering to them. Do I demand that right? No. I'll work. I'll work so I don't demand that right from you. Even though I could, even though God says I could, I'm going to lay down that right. 
Look at verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, right? So Paul didn't go to the Jews with like a, cheeseburger, like a bacon cheeseburger and just say, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because that would offend them. So what does Paul do? I'll submit to your dietary laws. I'll submit to what I can and can't eat according to your rules. Why? Because I want to win you. What does he say in 21? To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Verse 22. To the weak, I became the weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And he goes to the principle, chapter 10, verse 23. He says, all things are lawful. I've got right after, I got all kinds of rights, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So what should you do? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I mean, reading these verses, I was almost weeping this week. That's countercultural, what Paul's talking about. To lay aside every right for the sake of someone else. I mean, we live in a rights-obsessed culture. I have the right to be what I want, think what I want, look how I want, like what I want, do what I want, and if you tell me otherwise, you're going to have hell to pay. And heartbreakingly, I think sometimes the church looks just like that. I have the right. Who are you to say that I can't do X, Y, Z. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we're more American Christians than we are Christian Americans. And that our core motives have more in common with our country than our Savior. When individual freedom trumps concern for others, you're just like the world. And you're not like your Savior. And yet, Paul can find a church like this to be worth the mess. Why? Because despite all of their issues and all of their sin, they are precious to God. He has sanctified them in Christ Jesus. He sent his son to die for them, and he rescued them, and he called them to himself. And they are saints, even though they don't act like it. They're precious to God. So they're worth the mess. Secondly, the church is worth the mess because of what God gives. Go back to chapter 1 and look at Paul's thanksgiving in verse 4. Look at what God has given these people that don't deserve it. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. I think verse 6, he's just saying like, yeah, it's, it's, it was genuine. It was genuine conversion. These are real Christians that he's talking about. So that you're not lacking in any gift 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, Paul can give thanks because he thinks, what has God done for this church? God has given them grace. When they didn't deserve it, he gave them grace. Things they didn't deserve, God freely gave because they're precious to him. God enriches them. In verse 5, he gives them every rich, every rich that they need, every part of the riches they need. Think of Ephesians 1. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings, right? He just pours it out. He loves to pour it out onto his people. He's provided gifts in verse 7. You're not lacking in any gift. And then in verse 8, he's sustaining them, and he'll present them guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what God has invested in his people. And if God's that invested in his people, can you be? that invested in his people. And it's hard not to read these verses and you feel like you're saying, Christ Jesus, our Lord, Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Lord, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Every other verse, or almost every verse, is about Jesus. What did God give? God gave his son to these people. How did they get the grace in verse 4? Grace of God that was given to you, how? In Christ Jesus. Where do you get the riches that you have in verse 5? You were enriched how? In him. Verse 7, you're given gifts until who comes back? Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's coming back for you? Jesus Christ is coming back for you. And what does he do in verse 8? He's the one who will sustain you to the end. He's the one that's going to lift you up and present you guiltless when he comes again. Think of what God did for you in giving you his son. Think about what he's invested in you. And if he thought that he would invest this in you, can we invest in one another? And when Paul gives this thanks, I think he's being completely genuine, right? This isn't just being polite. This isn't just saying nice words. He actually truly thanks God for this church. But I also think that Paul is being very intentional in what he is thanking God for and in some of the things he's not saying in this thanksgiving. This thanksgiving to God is a little bit like a mom coming home and seeing a broken lamp on the ground and a football sitting next to the broken lamp. And the kids aren't saying anything, and so she gathers them all together and she says, hey, let's pray together, okay? And she prays, God, thank you that you teach us what's right and wrong. God, thank you that you've given us a conscience that reminds us when we're doing something that we're not supposed to do. God, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that does not let us be comfortable when things are not addressed, when things are not confessed. Right? And what's the point? Is that genuine thanksgiving? Yes. Is it purposeful thanksgiving? Absolutely. And that's what Paul's doing here, right? Turn to Ephesians. Look at, let's just look at a couple other times that he thanks God for the church and just see how those line up with his thanksgiving here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. 
says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you. So why is he giving thanks? Because the Ephesians have faith and the Ephesians have love for one another and for him. Turn to Colossians. A couple books later. Colossians 1, verse 3. says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. One more, 1 Thessalonians, next book. Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So almost every other letter that Paul writes, when he thinks about the church, he's able to say, I thank God for what you believe. I thank God for your love for the saints. I thank God that you are looking forward to Jesus coming back. How many of those things does he mention in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 9? None. Right? Because what are they doing with the things that God has done for them? They're abusing them. What are they doing with the grace that is given to them? Look at chapter 5. How are they handling the grace that God has given them? Grace to forgive them of their sin. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even by pagans, for a man has his father's wife. That's what they're doing with the grace of God. And look at what it says in verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Right? They're saying we're progressive. We're tolerant. Right? We believe in the grace of God. We believe it so much that we're fine with someone sleeping with their stepmom and we'll welcome them like a brother in Christ. That's what they're doing with the grace of God. How about the gifts that God has given? All these gifts. They're not lacking any spiritual gift. What are they doing with these gifts? They're competing with one another about who has the best gift. Who's the most important in the church? Look at chapter 14, verse 1. They're using their gifts to boast over one another. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gift, especially that you may prophesy, right? What was the spiritual gift that they thought was the, be the best, that you're really something if you do this particular gift? It was tongues. Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. You think, oh, that sounds pretty good. But now look what he says. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. The only person that's going to hear you when there's no one to interpret is God. No one else is going to benefit from that gift. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. 
but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, flip over to verse 18 and 19. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I mean, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I would rather stand up here and say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In English, than to recite the whole book of Romans in a language that nobody knows. Who does that benefit? He's like, it's perfect that you value tongues as the highest spiritual gift. That's a perfect for you, Corinth. Because it's the only gift that unless you have another gift, it benefits absolutely no one except yourself. The whole point of gifts is to benefit others. And they want the gift that benefits no one but themselves. So what has been the result of all these great blessings that they've received from God? Pride and self-centeredness. When it should result in the same things that characterize Christ's ministry, which is service to people that don't deserve it. And it's in the middle of that context that he writes 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest chapter on love in the New Testament and it's not written to two people on the altar, right? This isn't from newlyweds that are lovingly looking into each other's eyes as they recite these verses. The church of Corinth isn't newlyweds. They're a couple on the verge of a bitter divorce. And that's when Paul writes these words about love. Look at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never ends. I mean, Paul's looking out at this church and he's like, there's no love. All of these gifts, all of these blessings that Christ has poured out and there's no love, what does it all mean? Nothing. It doesn't mean anything. You know, I think we're quick in the church to say, well, love is a verb, love is action, you gotta be doing it. But this is sort of the counter to that. No, love is a disposition of the heart to benefit someone else. Because you can do all the actions, but if you don't have love, it means nothing. Staying with the marriage analogy, imagine a husband, you ask him, do you love your wife? I go to work. I pay all the bills. But do you love your wife? I mow the lawn, and I wash the car. She loves a clean car. I keep it washed. But do you love your wife? Do you have affection for her? Do you think about her? Do you find your differences 
endearing and sharpening rather than annoying and frustrating? Would you rather spend your Saturday afternoon with her than you would your buddies? When there's conflict between you and her, do you pursue understanding and reconciliation? Do you love your wife? And now the question that nobody wants to hear, do you love the people of Valley Bible Church? I attend every Sunday. I give regularly. But do you love the people, all the people of Valley Bible Church? I greet my friends. I use my gifts. But do you love the people of Valley Bible Church? What about the ones that you disagree with? How do you feel about them? What about the ones whose choices look different than your choices? Do you have affection for them? What about those that have different gifts than you? What about the ones that are in deep sin? Do you love the people of Valley Bible Church? Do you come to church with an affection for the entire body? Do you come looking to build up other people? Or is church just about what you get out of it? Now, why would Paul say that love is so important? Come on, Paul, we've got gifts. We've got tongues. We've got prophecy. We've got all sorts of stuff. Like, look at it all. And Paul would say it means nothing without love. Where did he get that? Why does he think that? Look at chapter 12, verse 12. says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with, now you'd expect him to say the church, right? Many members, one body, one body, but many members, that's what the church is like. But what does he say? He says, what's like that? Who's like that? Christ is like that. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 13. Verse 12, we'll start there. Chapter 1, verse 12. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Then what does he say? Is Christ divided? Can you, is it okay for you to like this person and not this person in the church. Is that okay? No. Because that would say that what? Christ is divided. He says, no, you love every person in the church because the way that you treat every person in the church is the way that you treat Christ. Now, where did Paul get that idea? Turn to Acts chapter 9. Where would he get the idea that the way that you treat one of God's people is the way that you treat Jesus. Well, look how Paul got converted in Acts chapter 9. Verse 4. He says, In falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Wait, wait. In Acts, when did Paul ever persecute Jesus? He'd say, never. But who did Paul persecute? Christians. And what does Jesus say? 
why are you persecuting my followers? No, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I mean, it's the words of Christ, right? Christ says at the end times, they're going to gather these people together, and Jesus is going to say, when I was thirsty, you gave me a cup of water. When I was in jail, you visited me. And people are going to be like, what are you talking about? I never gave you a cup of water. I was alive 2,000 years after you. When did I ever give you a cup of water? Well, he says, to the extent that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And the flip side. To another group, he'll say, well, you never gave me. When I was thirsty, you never gave me a drink of water. When I was in prison, you never visited me. And they're going to say, well, when, when, did that, when did that ever happen? To the extent that you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it for me. Your life and your ministry is going to be measured by what you do to the least of these. Your love for Christ is going to be measured by what you do for the least of these, the least of us. And yet, Paul can thank God for this church. Because even though they're not living this way, it's still who they are. They still are precious to God. They still are a people that have received from God grace and gifts and riches. And so can we love each other the way that Paul loves this church? Lastly and briefly, verse 9, back in chapter 1. The church is worth the mess because God can't fail. You, you read through this, you think about 1 Corinthians, you think, how is it that Paul can love this church? How can he thank God for them? How can he actually have the expectation and the confidence that these things are going to turn out okay? Verse 9. God is faithful. It can't fail. So you can, the church is worth the mess because it's not going to fail. God will make sure it doesn't fail because God is faithful. The proof of his faithfulness is that you have been called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's going to be the solution to every problem that comes up in 1 Corinthians. You have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord. You're united to Christ. You participate in his life. There is a cross-shaped solution to every problem that we'll encounter in 1 Corinthians. And there is hope for that reason to every problem in 1 Corinthians because God is faithful and God does not fail. Pastor Phil, we had lunch or breakfast with him and Carolyn yesterday, and he told me that when he started Valley, he prayed that God would give him the people that nobody else wants. And now I'm stuck with you all. <laughs> no, but you think, like, that's a great prayer. That's exactly what I would pray, right? And I want to join him in that prayer. Give us the people that nobody else wants. Yeah, but they might be messy. It, but, but they might be involved in all kinds of sin. I mean, some of their sin might even be worse than what the world does. But, but they might not like what I like or do what I do or make the choices that I make. Can you love them anyway? And can you ask that God would give us the people that nobody else wants? so that he might show off his grace and his power more and more 
and more. Would you pray for me? Pray for me that I'd be this kind of shepherd. That I would love the church the way that Paul loves this church. Pray for all of our leaders. That we would never think, we would never get frustrated or annoyed at God's people, but we would thank God for them. And we would pray for them. He ends this letter, verse 16, by saying, My love be with you all. From beginning, I thank God for you. To the very end, I love you all. In the middle, you're a mess, but I thank God for you, and I love you all. Can you pray that for our leaders? Can you pray that for yourself? Can you pray that for every brother and sister that's here, that we would love the church this way, the way that God loves it, and that he might be glorified as a result? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we, like Paul, would be able to say, whether I eat or drink, I do all things for the glory of God. How I love the least of these, I do for the glory of God. Lord, when I think about Valley Bible Church, I don't think we have all the same problems that the the Church of Corinth did, by your grace. But I do pray that even if we did, and I actually kind of pray that we would have those kinds of problems, if it means that you're saving the unlikeliest people from the unlikeliest places. Lord, I do agree with Pastor Phil. Give us the people that nobody else wants. Because you'd be glorified in such a greater way. Lord, if you just gave us sort of polished Christians, we just wouldn't be able to see all the ways that your power and your grace can be displayed in not only saving, but in sanctifying your people. Now, Lord, if you're going to give us those kinds of people, then we need to be people that we view our core identity as those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we're a community of humility and gratitude and service, and unity. And that we're a community that remains dependent on you, knowing that only you are faithful. And that would also be our confidence. You are faithful. You're going to present every one of your people guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, let us go forth with that confidence and with that joy. Help us to thank God for each of us and to love each one of us as well. In Christ's name, amen.